We're going to be continuing our series this morning, the series that we started last Sunday, uh, created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So if you're visiting with us this morning, that's a series that we've been going through uh, for a week now. Today makes two weeks. And what we're going to be focusing on this morning is the fall of creation. Last week we were focusing upon when God created, why He created, and things like that. So I'm just going to take a moment before we get into uh, the fall and looking at uh, some of the areas of the fall, do a brief recap, catch us up, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. So last week, as I mentioned just a second ago, we were looking at creation, what is called creation. You remember we've divided this series up mainly into the four sections that are known as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You can divide the Bible up using those four divisions. And so last week we were focusing on creation, when God spoke everything into existence, when He created the world, when He created humanity, everything. And the reason why He created was not because He was lacking in some way, not because He was in need, not because He was lonely, because He needed relationship or anything like that. No, God created because He desired to share who He is. Or in other words, He desired to share His glory. God created to show forth His glory. Or you could say, that when God created, His glory overflowed into creation. And then we saw that when God created mankind, He created them in the image of Himself, in the image of God. And so being made in the image of God, you and I, unlike the rest of creation, are created to glorify God in a unique way. And not only are we created to glorify God in a unique way, but we are also created to enjoy Him forever. Created to make much of Him, and in making much of Him, or in glorifying Him, we enjoy Him. We find joy, we find satisfaction, we find fulfillment. We also saw that in doing this, in God creating us for His glory, you know, to make much of Him. And in making much of Him, we find our joy. God didn't do this to be oppressive. He didn't do this to be mean. He didn't do this because He needed us to make much of Him, as if He was very small and we sing praises to Him. And you know, it makes Him look big. It makes Him look powerful. It makes Him look like He's somebody. No. As we saw in Psalm 16, God did this because in His presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, the path of life is found in His presence. So if we did not make much of God, if we were not in His presence, praising Him, glorifying Him, there would be no path of life, there would be no joy, there would be no satisfaction, 
we would be lost. We would not have any of those things. So it's not oppressive that God has done this. It's in fact good for us. And then we concluded last week with the question, so what happened? Because we saw that Adam and Eve, you know, in the beginning, they, they enjoyed all of these things in perfection. God created them, put them in the garden. They glorified God and enjoyed Him as they were called and created to. They enjoyed perfection with God, you know, this vertical relationship, and with others, each other, that horizontal relationship. Perfection. So what happened? Because the world that you and I live in today, it's hard to even imagine what that would have looked like, right? You know, all of the horrific things that we see in this broken world today. So what happened? Well, what is known as the fall of creation happened. Mankind rejected the glory of God and sin entered into creation. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, the fall of creation, specifically God's glory being rejected. Now within this sermon, we're going to be looking at the fall and how God's glory was rejected in the fall, but there's going to be four areas or four aspects of the fall that we're going to be focusing in on as we look at this bigger picture. First, I want us to look at Adam and Eve's disobedience or their sin. Then we'll look at the consequences of sin, some of them anyways, some of the consequences of sin. We'll look at or we'll ask the question that looms in the shadows whenever we look at the fall, which is, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow or permit sin to enter into the world? And then finally, we'll look at God's plan of redemption, even in the midst of the fall. Even as sin entered into the world, we'll see how God's plan of redemption was there. There was no plan B. There was no, let me go back to the drawing board and see where we're going to go from here. It was always there. So that's what we're going to see. Now, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's going to be our primary passage as we consider these things. Genesis chapter 3, and if you would like to read in the ESV translation that I'm reading from, please you could just take the pew Bible that's located in front of you and read along in it if you'd like. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Father, we come before you now as your word is opened before us and as we consider uh, the fall of creation when sin entered into the world. We ask for your help, Lord. There are difficult things here that we are about to look at and to consider and study. And I pray that you would be with me, that you would guard my mouth, that I would not say anything that contradicts the truth of your word. May everything that I say and proclaim before your people be true. May it go alongside with what you teach in your word and may it be clear and understandable. I pray also for those who are sitting before me. Pray that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is willing to receive these things with delight, with joy. And O oh Lord, help us to see Christ shining forth, even in the midst of this horrific event called the fall, when sin entered into the world and ruined your good creation. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for who You are. And we thank You for Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So when God created Adam and Eve, we saw that they lived in perfection. There was no sin whatsoever. There was perfection in relationship with God and there was perfection in relationship with each other, with Adam and Eve. But then as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It kind of, when we come to chapter 3, it just abruptly goes to that. And there's no hints of where the serpent came from, what events led up to Adam and Eve seeing the serpent. I mean, what exactly was going on? We're just told that they were in the garden. This serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, don't miss that part, that the Lord God had made, this is a creature here, we're not really told you know, the surrounding things happening. We're just given these facts here. Adam and Eve are in the garden. This serpent, who we know from other parts and passages of the Bible, is Satan himself whether he was a literal snake in this moment. Again, we don't know, or does the Bible just use the language of serpent? But anyways, we know from other passages that this is Satan himself here. And he confronts the woman specifically, but Adam and Eve are both there. He confronts her, and he begins to launch an assault on God's character by asking Eve a question. Did the Lord God actually say? Did He actually say? I mean, yeah, the serpent knows that He asked the question, but He's just kind of, He's trying to punch holes into the character of God. You know, did He actually say that you cannot eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, setting Eve up? No, well, actually, he didn't say that. He said, we can eat of all the trees, or all the fruit of the trees in the garden, except for one, the one that's in the midst of it. 
And then she adds a piece to it, says, we can't touch it either. Well, God didn't say that. So maybe there's some resentment there. And why can't we touch it? Or maybe she's just adding that as a, an extra barrier, an extra safeguard. You know, we don't even want to touch that tree because God has forbidden it. But Satan does his work. He asks his question. He punches holes in the character of God. The woman responds, says in part anyways what God has told Adam and Eve both about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan responds again after the woman has said, you know, we'll die if we we touch it or if we eat it. He responds, he says, you will not surely die. But the Lord knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve... They believe the lie of Satan. They take of the tree's fruit and they eat. Their eyes are opened and they, they know and they understand that they are naked and exposed. But in that moment, as they took from the tree, as they ate of its fruit, there was an exchange that took place. In that moment... They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation and for the glory of man. Listen to how Paul describes this sin and sin in general in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. He, he writes this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1 there in those verses, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they sinned against God in that moment, and every sin in general, when we commit sin, there's an exchange that takes place. They and we take God's glory, His character, who He is, how He's made Himself known to us, and we exchange it for something else. For creation. For idols. For another so-called truth that we think is better, or more satisfying, more gratifying, and things like that. God's glory was exchanged in that moment for the glory of man and for the glory of creation. And the same thing has happened ever since that moment. 
All mankind has rejected and exchanged the glory of God for our own glory and for the glory of creation. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Lord speaking through His prophet here. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the the fountain of living waters. That's one evil. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Second, and hewed out cisterns that can hold no water. Again, the exchange put on display there. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. We have forsaken God. We have looked at His glory, all that He is, how He's made Himself known to us, all of those wonderful things that we saw last week. You know, how when we see the beauty of creation, it makes known to us God and His character and what He's like. We take His glory, we taste it, we behold it, and we say, that's not good enough. I don't want that. I want something better. And so we turn from it to something else. As Jeremiah says here in chapter 2, we forsake God and we hew out cisterns that can hold no water. God's glory was rejected in the fall of creation, in Adam and Eve's sin and in our sin ever since. Rejected and exchanged for something else. And there are consequences because of this. There are consequences because of their sin and because of our sin. Here are some of those consequences. Because of sin, because we have exchanged the glory of God for for other things and rejected it, creation is no longer as it should be. It is no longer the, the good creation that God stood back after He created all things and said, it is good, it is very good. That banner of good is no longer there. I mean, creation is still good in a way. There are good things here to see and behold and enjoy, but it's broken, it's fractured, it's not whole. There is now chaos present in the world. For example, there is disorganization, there is frustration, there is sickness, there is hatred, there's murder, there's theft, and many other horrible things that happen within this world. All because of sin, because of disobedience, because of God's glory being rejected and exchanged. Another consequence, death did indeed enter into the world, just like God said it would, even though the serpent said that Adam and Eve would not die. What God said in Genesis 2 verse 17 came to pass. Death did indeed enter into the world. We will all at some point face death if Christ does not return before then. And one of the things about death that is interesting, if you think about it, 
is that it preaches to us in a way. I want you to think about a, a funeral. When we see death and the, the sadness that it brings, say whenever you're, when you're, you're at a funeral, whenever maybe someone close to you has died, a friend, a spouse, or, or someone you're close to that you love has died and death is before you, Yes, it's horrible. Yes, it's a consequence of sin. But all the same time, it's preaching a message saying, this is not as it should be. The world is not as it should be. And as you're sitting there, you can feel that. You have that overwhelming feeling, those overwhelming thoughts that as you endure this great sadness, this great suffering, life was not meant to be this way. Death entered into the world as a consequence of sin, it's a consequence of rejecting God's glory. And yet at the same time, it preaches a message pointing us back to the goodness of the original creation when all things were good. Another consequence, we have been separated from the presence of God. Genesis 3 verses 23 and 24. After Adam and Eve had sinned, after God had pronounced His curses upon them, what did He do? He kicked them out of the garden, didn't He? Why? Because God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. God is holy. He is righteous. He is perfectly righteous and perfectly good. He cannot dwell in the presence of sin. So Adam and Eve had to get out. They could not dwell there any longer. And since we cannot dwell in the presence of God, since they could not dwell in the presence of God, they lost and we lose all the wonderful things that we saw in Psalm 16. The path of life, life itself, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Those things are found where? In the presence of God. So, because of our sin and being separated from God's presence, in our sin we no longer enjoy those things. And that's why we have that great void, as we call it, within our hearts that just doesn't seem to ever be filled. You know, like our desire to be happy. And we grab for this, we grab for that, hoping that it will satisfy us, hoping that it will make us happy. And it will for a moment, but then it just kind of goes away. You know, it just kind of blows away like the wind and the journey starts all over again. Well, that didn't work. Let me try this. None of it will work because all of those things, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, life itself, they're not found in anything in this world and they're not found in us, but they're found in God's presence. And since we've been separated, cut off, there's a void that's been created. And it can only be filled by God Himself. The final consequence of sin that I want to bring before you is this. Because of our sin, because of our rejection of God's 
glory, we are, we are all deserving of God's judgment. We all deserve His righteous and holy wrath upon our sin. Romans 3 verses 9 to 18. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, everybody, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then when you come to chapter 3, verse 23, Paul summarizes all this by saying, For all have fallen short of the glory of God, and they deserve His wrath. We deserve His wrath. We are all guilty. None of us, none of you, nobody in the world can say, I'm innocent. I have not sinned against God. You can't say that. We're all guilty. And you know, even Christians, after we have been saved by God's grace through the gospel of Christ, through the good news of Jesus Christ, even after we've been made new, we still struggle with these consequences. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that this force field comes around you and you are immune to the brokenness of the world. You still struggle with sin, even as a Christian. You still struggle to find your delight fully and wholly in God and in Christ. Even as Christians, we still struggle with death. You know, Christians still die and we still face the the sadness and the suffering when others die. We still get sick. We still suffer from the disorganization and the frustration and all of the other broken parts of this creation. Just because you become a Christian does not mean that you're not going to, to face these things. They will still happen. You've just been made new and you have the promise of a glorious future that Peter in 1 Peter says is imperishable and unfading and cannot be taken away. Christians have that hope even in the midst of all the brokenness, but they still face it up close and personal. Now as we think about you know, the, the consequences of sin and why our world is so broken, the horrificness of it, you just can't help but ask the question, why would God let this happen? Why would He allow sin to come in and to just ruin everything, right? Why would He let sin, why would He let Satan come in and just wreak havoc on what was good, very good? I think that question always looms in our mind as we come to Genesis chapter 3 after we have just seen the, the goodness of creation and now it's this, it's fallen so far. Why? 
Why did God permit this to happen? Why did He allow Adam and Eve to sin in the first place? I mean, was God unable to stop them? Some would say that. Oh, well, you know, God just couldn't do anything about it. There are are some that have the theory that God has power, Satan has power, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they chose their own way, they broke their relationship with God, and because they broke their relationship with God, God no longer has power over them and He couldn't do anything about it. And so, God has power, Satan has power, they're both battling in the midst of all this, and then, you know, we, our choice is what makes all the difference. And that's just baloney, <laughs> honestly. Because think about God's sovereignty that we were looking at it and just laying out there all last week, showing that God is in need of nothing, He's dependent on no one, He can do whatever He wants. I mean, He spoke the universe into being with no one's help, saying that God was unable to stop them is an inadequate answer. Saying that God was unable to stop them, saying that God was powerless in this way is an inadequate answer. Because none of this was outside of God's control. God is sovereign over all things and He's sovereign even over the bad. Consider these passages here. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. All that He pleases. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Speaking about idols, small g, gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, or the the dice. But its every decision is from the Lord. The dice are cast, but the decision is from the Lord. Lamentations 3, 37-38. Who has spoken and it come to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet, trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is sovereign over all things, even the bad things, as these passages witness. And God does not try to hide this truth. God is, God is very upfront about the truth that he, he controls all things with no exceptions. He's not just sovereign, sovereign over this little part here and not this part over here. He's sovereign over it all. Because if God is not sovereign over one area, then He's not sovereign at all. To say that God is sovereign over something and not something else well, that just blows apart sovereignty itself, doesn't it? I mean, what does the word sovereignty mean? To be sovereign is to be in control over all things. 
And God is indeed sovereign. So this brings us back to the question, why did God allow the fall to happen? If He's sovereign, even over this, why would He permit it? Knowing the consequences that it would bring. Knowing the destruction that it would bring. Knowing that it would ruin creation. That it would fracture it. That it would break it. Cause it to be broken. What good purpose could God possibly have in mind by allowing sin to enter into creation? This is the answer. God allowed sin, or He permitted sin, to enter into His good creation for the greater good that He would later accomplish. Listen to Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, Paul writes, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of man. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Who would do that in hope? Would Satan do that in hope? No. Satan's goal is always to wreak havoc and to bring evil and to ruin God's good causes, right? That is always Satan's aim. So, Paul could not possibly be talking about Satan here when he says, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, but obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of man. That's God. God subjected creation. You know, He allowed sin to enter into the world and then He subjected it with the curses in hope because He knew what was coming. He knew that it would be restored. He knew what He was going to do. He subjected it in hope. So when God allowed, permitted sin into the world and then subjected the world to futility because of sin, He did so with the plan of redemption in mind and His glory that He would display there. That was the greater good that He had in mind. Now let me be very clear that as I say God allowed or He permitted sin to enter into the world or He permitted Adam and Eve to do what they did or He permitted Satan to do what He did, I do not mean that God in some way directly caused it to happen. As if God has evil within Himself. It's very obvious all over the Bible that God is good and there is no evil whatsoever within Him. 1 John makes that clear, that God is light and within Him there is no darkness whatsoever. And maybe these examples that I'm going to bring up will kind of help make the picture a little bit more clear. Think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Joseph, specifically in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. So Joseph... 
you remember, was one of Jacob's sons. Jacob had made a coat of many colors for Joseph, which made the other brothers jealous. Well, they didn't like it. They ended up selling Joseph into slavery. And Joseph spent, I think, about 13 years or so in slavery in Egypt. But God used all of that to put him in the second most powerful place in Egypt. God used the evil of the brothers for the good of Joseph. This is what Joseph says here in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, his brothers, they have now come to Joseph because Jacob has died and now they fear that Joseph's going to seek revenge on them because of what they've done to him. But he says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now listen, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God didn't make those brothers do what they did. Their evil intention was within themselves. But God took it and used it for good. This is the other example. The crucifixion of Jesus. Acts 4, 27-28 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's the people of God praying there. And this is what they say. Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they crucified your son. They gathered together. You know, they proclaimed him guilty. They hung Him on the cross and they crucified Him. That was their evil intentions. God did not make them do that. Nobody made them do that. That was their own evil intentions, their own hatred and rejection of God. But what did they say at the end? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, God took their evil intentions and He used it to bring about the salvation of all of His people. Again, the banner of what Joseph said to his brothers. I think that is the banner over all evil. The banner that God hangs over all evil. You meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. That flies over all evil. And it's the same thing that happened here in Genesis 3. Yes, Satan had his own evil agenda in convincing Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, didn't he? And Adam and Eve had their own evil intentions as they took of the fruit and ate it. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan wanted to disrupt God's plan and 
wreak havoc upon His creation. But in the midst of their evil intentions, all they could do is accomplish the plan of God. Inevitably, that's all they could do. I hope that makes a little bit more sense when you think about those examples there. God permitted Satan to do what he did. He permitted Adam and Eve to do what they did. But all the while, as they did what they did, he knew and he had planned that he would receive greater glory as if that did not happen. Because think about it a moment. If the fall did not come, yes, creation was glorious and we saw God's glory, or Adam and Eve saw God's glory and we would have seen God's glory. But without a fall, there is no redemption. Without a fall, there is no the incarnation of Jesus Christ you would not have been able, we would not have been able to see those aspects of God. I mean, yeah, God could have told us those things. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I am like. And if this and this was to happen, I would do this. But it's totally different to personally experience it. And I also encourage you to look at that further. If this is still foggy, you can go to the Gospel Coalition website and look up why did God allow the fall? And there, there are some good articles there for, for you to read. Moving on. God's plan of redemption in the midst of sin. So I said a moment ago that when God allowed sin to come into the world, He, he had in mind the plan of redemption. Can we see that? Do we see that anywhere? Yes. Well, we saw it in Roman in the Romans 8 passage, and we saw it in the Acts chapter 4 passage. And we also see it here in Genesis chapter 3. Look down at verse 15 with me. This is as God is pronouncing His curses over the serpent, over Adam, and over Eve. After they've sinned against Him, and now He's pronouncing the curses because of their sin, because of their rejection of His glory. But even in the midst of God pronouncing these curses, pay careful attention to what this verse says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, or crush it, and you shall bruise His heel. That verse by theologians is often known as the proto-evangelium. The proto-evo what? It just means the first announcement of the gospel. Because this is the first time that you see the gospel proclaimed foreshadowed, given a picture of. And it's right here, even as God gives curses because of their sin. Even in the midst of the fall, the gospel is there. This isn't some plan B that God had to 
think quickly about. It was there already. It's always been the plan. From the very beginning, God had this plan of redemption in mind. Here, God gives a glimpse of what is to come. He gives us a glimpse of Christ and what He will one day do. One day He will make all things right. He will restore all things. He will crush the head of this wicked serpent while in the process His heel will be bruised. And we we know and understand that to be the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus crushed the head of Satan. But he was injured in the process. His heel was bruised. He took the wrath of God in the process of accomplishing this. And that's what we're going to focus on next week as we consider these questions. Who is the serpent crusher? How is he going to fix the mess that sin is made? How is he going to restore what we were ultimately made for? How will we once again be able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? And another important question, how is He going to vindicate the glory of God that has just been trampled all over because of sin? We'll be answering those questions next week as we look at Christ and the cross and how He accomplishes all of these things through it. Father, we come before You and oh, we thank You for Your wisdom, for who You are. Lord, we have looked at some puzzling things in Your Word and I know that at the end of the day I am inadequate to explain them completely and with complete justice. But I pray that You would use what I have said to build up Your people and their understanding of Your Word and their delight in Your Son and in Your glory and His glory and what He has accomplished in the cross. And what we see here, even in Genesis 3.15, that although sin had entered into the world and it looked like all things were lost, You proclaimed good news that one day Your Son would come He would crush the head of the serpent while at the same time facing injury himself and restore all things. And oh Lord, He has. You have kept your promises. He has come. He has accomplished this. And we have been made new through Him. And I pray that many more would come to understand this and they would receive it as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.